Thank you. Thank you, music and worship ministry. Appreciate your service. And um, got to say, I'm rather partial uh, to the young lady with the microphone over here. Uh, and uh, this is uh, kind of a big deal uh, for her tonight because uh, um, coming about 10 days, she's moving to Washington, D.C. Uh, to take a job there uh, at a law firm. And so uh, we're proud of her. And at the same time, I hate every minute of it. So <laughs> you pray for her, and uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Boy, you did that well. And what a neat song. It takes us from the light of creation all the way to the birth of the church. And I want to tell you, it's good you stopped there, because if you'd gone on, if we had gone on to the book of Revelation, we would have all been raptured out of this place. Your clothes would be laying on the floor and all sorts of things. So anyway, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and I appreciate so much uh, the, uh, what the Lord has been teaching me from uh, the Scripture as of late. I, I'm kind of in that place in my walk with Christ where I'm seeing everything as a promise. You know, when you get, uh, you get your heart wrapped around a biblical truth, you can almost see it everywhere in the Bible. You've got to be careful of that, that you don't distort uh, any uh, passages. But that's kind of what I'm, I'm seeing. I want to say thank you also for your prayers. Um, the message I delivered Sunday really has exhausted me, and I've had a hard time concentrating this week. So, uh, but I do think that the uh, information our Great Commission Facilities Committee has given us has launched us into a gentle movement. I'm really looking forward to more of what they've got for us. It's really, really neat. And uh, they've done such a marvelous job. And had you been in the meetings, you would have been really proud of them. And I'm, I'm just really thrilled about uh, what comes next. But in any case, we've got some marvelous promises in Malachi chapter 3. And that re reminds me of uh, the pilot and navigator who were flying an airplane and they crashed into the ocean and they pulled out their lifeboat. They got into it. They tried to signal for help, but there was no help coming. And they went on for several days. And finally, the pilot prayed after a few days. And he, um, he prayed, and he said, uh, Dear God, if you will get us out of this mess, I promise. And the navigator said, Stop right there. Don't say another word. I see land. He cut his prayer off short uh, because the truth is, is that he saw land, and he didn't want him making any promises to God at all under those circumstances. The truth is, is that there are some that flinch and hesitate to make promises, when in fact, God is the kind of God that makes promises. And you've got to live there. If you will live there, and if you will live your life and anticipate and expect God to come through with His promises, He will. Matthew eleven twenty four. Jesus said, if you ask anything believing, you will receive it. And he says that in the present tense. It's not the future, as I just quoted. It's actually in the present tense. If you can imagine yourself receiving the promise of God, God will answer. There are, depending on who you consult, anywhere between 5,000 and 7,000 promises in the Scripture. That is a God who is constantly putting his proverbial neck on the line. And so he wants you to swim in this. He wants you to view your current circumstances that way. He wants you to view your future that way as defined not by, not by the whims of others, not by the uh, erratic nature maybe of your commitment, but instead he wants you to view, he wants you to view 
your current life, your future, even your past, as defined by the promises of God. That's how we stand. And so I don't hesitate and I don't blush to take these promises to God in prayer and plead with Him to come through. And I say, dear Lord, you said you'd do it. And you said you're committed to the honor and integrity of your name. Holy God, would you come through? Please come through. Uphold the integrity of your name. Do something with this promise. And and Lord, don't do anything. Don't hasten in a way that would cause others to doubt your name. Come through and build people's faith in you. And I think we can go before God and we can plead with Him in that way. And Malachi's got some promises that are in the text like this. And there, there are four of them. One is a promise of purity. Uh, verses 1 through 5 talk about this. And there is a promise of purity. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, the perjurers, those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Several things about this promise of purity. It's a prepared promise. In verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare my way before me. This is in Matthew 11, what Jesus says of John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfills this. Now, John the Baptist was, to Jesus, what many uh, ancient servants in the king's court happened to be to a king. If a king or a queen happened to be traveling someplace, a servant would go out before the king or queen and would clean up the road, would clean up any trash that's there, would fill some potholes that might make travel difficult. If there were some hills or rough places in the road, they would lower them is what they would do. And so they would go several uh, uh, hours or days beforehand and make sure the path was smooth, the path was straight, and that it was pleasant for the king. John the Baptist did that for Jesus to the hearts of Israel. He did it by preaching repentance. We do that today by preaching repentance. So it is a prepared promise. In other words, right now, God is working to prepare us for more purity. And he has several avenues besides John the Baptist. Don't you dare get discouraged about your walk with God. Don't you dare get discouraged about a lack of purity. You need to know God is working on your behalf to make you more and more pure. Parents of children, don't you, don't you get discouraged with that. You keep working with them even if they're 14 years old. You just keep struggling and dealing. God is doing a neat work in order to build more and more purity in them is precisely what he's doing. It's a prepared promise. Somewhere along the line, there's a John the Baptist in the life, uh, your life or the life of that kid. There may be an influence like John the Baptist. There may be a scripture verse that touches you like a John the Baptist would. There is always preparation on the part of God because God takes this seriously. It's a prepared promise. And then it happens to be a painful promise. Verses 2 and 3. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. 
In other words, there's some rough washing taking place here, and there is a fire. There is in a sense then, when repentance comes and when we turn to Him, there is, a, it can be a painful experience. It can be a painful experience to turn to purity. J. Edwin Orr, who was a master and um, expert in the study of awakenings around the world and especially the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, in fact, he wrote two dissertations on it, two different institutions. He said that revival is like judgment. The initial experience of repenting to pursue purity can feel like a judgment from God. It can shake your soul. It can disturb you. It can bother you. But don't be discouraged because then comes sweet relief from the grace of God. And so whenever there is repentance and when we turn to purity, there's probably going to be some struggle, strain, stress, and striving. There may be some severe conviction from the Holy Spirit. It is said when Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people sitting in pews would fall to their knees and hold on to the pew in front of them, fearing they would slip into hell from that congregation. There may be something similar to that. And I'm not asking for histrionics, not asking for gymnastics in church, not trying to produce that. But if it were, quite frankly, though, that would be better than what we've got in most places. Really would be. Where people are so struck by the holiness of God and their own impurity that it ends up feeling like a fire and someone's taken a rough scrub brush to scrub away sin. So it may be painful. But then, it's not only prepared and painful, but... Look how pleasant it is in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem. The offering that is Judah in Jerusalem. You know, when they went to the sacrificial system, the animals that they offered were stand-ins for themselves. And this anticipates Romans 12.1, where we are urged to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are a sacrifice to God. We offer ourselves. And so it's not just an animal offering from Judah in Jerusalem. It is that Judah and Jerusalem are the offering themselves to God. That will be pleasant to the Lord. In other words, God takes pleasure. It is a pleasant experience. Listen to this. When, when you're struggling, when, you're, when, you, when you lack purity, when your conscience is, is in an uproar, when your heart is unsettled because of behavior, choices, attitudes, and disposition, don't hesitate to go to God. Because when you do, it's a pleasure to Him. It pleases Him. He loves His children to come. He loves for them to come. So don't hesitate to go. It, it, it is a pleasure to Him. It may feel like judgment to you. It's a pleasure to Him. And then, verse 5, there's a permeating influence. I'll come near you for judgment. I'll be swift to witness against the sorcerers, against deviant spirituality. I'm going to intervene and purify that. And against adulterers the moral and sexual areas of life. I'm going to intervene and purge that against the perjurers, against the legal system. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to, I'm going to um, purify that against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans. So all exploitation, he purges. Those who turn away the alien, he purges that too because they do not fear me. In other words, the presence of God in Jesus Christ in a heart and life has got the possibility of purging everything that is an offense to God. God can pull it off. It is a promise. And I say that purity is a promise because of this. 
Can you imagine how much trouble people could save themselves if they just quit sinning? How many relationships have been seriously injured because of sin? How many psyches have collapsed because of sin? A number of psychiatrists and others that have committed some in the old days to mental institutions said, Carl Menninger, in fact, that 80% of his patients he could release if they could know something about grace and forgiveness. If they could receive forgiveness or give it to others. Can you imagine what would happen to insurance rates if we had a revival of purity and righteousness? A lot of the insurance that we pay on our homes and cars and other insurances do because of sin. Purity is a promise, and it's not bad news, it's good news. So there's the promise of purity. But then there's the promise of permanence. Verses 6 and 7. For I'm the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, I'll return to you, says the Lord. But you say, in what way shall we return? There's a, tra- there's a contrast here. Verse 6, God says, because I don't change, you're not consumed. So I don't change, you can rely on my word, but I've not been able to rely on yours in verse 7. I've not been able to rely on you. So Israel is erratic. Israel is unreliable. Israel is flaky in many, many ways. But though Israel is erratic, God never is. Even though Israel is unreliable, God is never unreliable. Because Israel is flaky, God is is not at all. And God may not have been able to rely upon Israel's word or sometimes ours, but we can always rely on His because He never changes. And so even when you become erratic, even when you become flaky, Even when you become unreliable, God is still the same. He doesn't change. And so you can always go to Him and cling to His Word because that Word of promise will never change. So don't hesitate. You're a pleasure to Him when you return, no matter how dirty you are. And there is a guarantee of hope and grace when you come back to Him. Oh, my man, I preached myself happy here already. That's what you've got here. He doesn't change. Therefore, he puts it this way with Israel. You are not consumed. Well, it gets better. There's a third promise. There's a promise of plenty. And and with that, I've I've got to deliver some really, really bad news to you. Uh, I've discovered that Sunday morning, our church was, um, was robbed. And it was robbed in uh, both services. We was robbed. And you may say, well, how were we robbed? Verse 8. Well, a man robbed God, yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. That's really not a metaphor. I told that at the 4 o'clock service, and when I read verse 8, they all laughed with relief. Um, That really is not a metaphor. And whenever God's people do not bring tithes and offerings, they're robbing Him. And look, look, look what He says. 
will a man rob God? You've robbed me. He did not say you've robbed the temple or you've robbed the priest or you've robbed the Levites. He didn't say you've robbed Israel. He said, I take it much more personally than that. You have robbed me. Here's the consequence in verse 9. You're cursed with the curse for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, so it was widespread. So it was common practice not to tithe and give offerings in Israel at this time. You know, nobody did it. So there's apparently some social pressure there not to give. And I can just imagine the conversation. Somebody gets the notion of giving after reading Leviticus, and you can hear the conversation around the table. Oh, you've always been too spiritual. Really? You're going to take it that seriously? Don't you think you're going a little too far? So the whole nation. Now here's the scandalous part of it. Look what he says in verse 10 through 12. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there'll not be enough room to receive it, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor the vine uh, fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And then look at the witness from just giving. It would do something to the vibrancy of their public witness. And all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The horror of not giving, the scandal of not giving, was a scandal because God had promised to give them more than what they would ever need. And he's not... He's not um, he, he's not economical with his words here. He is not hesitant with his words here in his promise of plenty. He doesn't qualify any of this. There's no hesitancy here. There's no mitigating the words. He uses strong language and strong images in the text to talk about the blessing of giving. And so when I talk about giving, and, and I've asked our staff to think the same way and others, I really think I'm doing everyone a favor. And you know what? About all the tithers think so too. They do. I, I can always tell when I preach on tithing who's tithing. You know why? Because they're all back there going. They do. They do. I mean, they're about to come out of their seats. They're so electrified because they have experienced in a very practical way the power of giving they've experienced verses 10 11 and 12 God has opened the windows of the heavens and poured out a blessing so large they can't contain it in addition to that God has rebuked the devourer in other words uh, their property and other things well they, they might last a little longer and, and then they've got a vibrant witness they're most likely to be the greatest witnesses and so a lot of things hinge on giving. Now, I want to say to you that tithing is God's way of raising His children. It's not man's way of raising money. God owns it all already. God will get whatever He needs. Uh, taking care of His people financially is not a difficulty for God. I mean, when He came to the earth, when God came to the earth, He was so carefree 
He didn't own property or have a place to lay his head. It didn't bother him. He had everything he needed all the way through. And so there's the promise of plenty. But there's a final promise here, and that's the promise of possession. Now, I want you to notice there is a pattern here in this text from verses 13 to 18. Verses 13 to 18 are divided into two sections. 13, 14, and 15 is the first section. 16, 17, 18 is the second section, and they're parallel. Verse 13 has the same subject as verse 16, speech, speaking, words. Verse uh, 14 and verse 17 have the same subject, something that's valuable. And then verse 15 and verse 18 has something that is uh, the same, and that is discernment especially discerning people. And so, uh, but the difference between verse 13 and 15 and verse 16 and 18, the difference between the first section and the second section is that in the first section, God is confronting Israel. And then uh, the second section, 16 to 18, God is promising Israel about these subjects. So let's look here in verse 13. Here's how he complains. The Lord says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? He says, you've said it's useless to serve God and what profit is it that we keep His ordinance and that we mourn like mourners, like we repent in mourning. What good is it to serve God? What what good is it to repent? There's no good. Now because they were that minded, Here is the spiritual declension. Here's the spiritual decline in verse number 15. So now we call the proud blessed. We admire arrogant people who've bent themselves against Almighty God. They lacked spiritual discernment and judgment. For those who do wickedness are raised up. In other words, the wicked are elevated to places of authority and leadership. Which is precisely what Isaiah had complained about. Uh, some um, 500 years earlier. And so they lack such discernment that they really are excited about arrogant people and they are excited and elevate those who are, uh, who are wicked. Well, that's what happens in verse 15, and God complains all about it. But then there's verse 16 to 18. If they'll return to him, here's what happens. Now, the people here spoken of are those who speak about the Lord, They remember him, they meditate upon his name, and they fear him. Now, one of these days, I need to do at least a message and maybe a series on the fear of God. Most of the time, the fear of God means to stand in awe of God and tremble at how amazing he is. And the English word fear doesn't communicate all of it, and we we really don't have an emotional verb, an inward verb, to indicate all that fear of the Lord indicates. So it takes some explanation, but there's some wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, clues in the Scripture as to what it means. But here we have those who meditate on the Lord's name, who are amazed by Him, and here's what God says to them in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another horizontally, and the Lord listened and heard them. Every time two Christians have a conversation, there are three people present. The Lord is listening in. And he uh, puts it into remembrance for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. 
And here's what he says. They shall be mine. I'm taking them as my possession. I personally own them. They are my responsibility. I'm taking them to my heart in two illustrations here in verse 17. On the day that I make them my jewels. My wedding ring is very precious to me. If you've got one, I know it is to you too. But it means a lot for me to wear this. My dear bride brought this for me as of this past Sunday, exactly 29 years ago. And she was a poor seminary student. In fact, when we first started dating, I had to take her to go eat. All right? And uh, we spent, uh, that's where we spent a lot of our dates. So, and to know that she expended the kind of money she had to expend on this wedding ring means the world to me. She sacrificed to do it. And I love this wedding ring. And don't want to ever do without it at all. You probably feel the same way about yours if you're married. That's what God says about his people. That's how much he treasures them. But then there's more. Look here. He goes on to say, As a man spares his own son who serves him, I will spare them. And so as much as parents have a zeal for their own children, they're always on their heart. They never leave their heart. God says, that's my posture towards you. And then look at the result, the spiritual result. Then you shall again discern between righteousness and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. In other words, there's a moral discernment there. God keeps his promise. I don't know how it appears to others, but he's insistent on doing so. And I tried to teach my kids this when they were real small. They would oftentimes, we'd be, we, we, we tra- had to travel a lot in our early days when our children were small, getting from our home to grandparents' homes. And in those early days, we spent all of our vacation uh, with grandparents and uh, aunts and uncles. And we, of course, spent all the holidays with them. And whether we lived eight hours or 14 hours or six hours or four hours away from them, we were on the road a lot. And so we would uh, be in the car with our children and to encourage upstanding behavior, we would bribe them. (laughs) And we'd promise ice cream. Well, I would. And sometimes I would do it without realizing what time of the day it was and forgetting that we were leaving at about 6 in the evening and weren't going to be home till midnight. And I was discouraged from giving the children ice cream at midnight many a time. There's at least one good parent in our family, and it wasn't always me. But I had promised it, and I couldn't break the promise. So we'd go into the kitchen, I'd deal out ice cream, a couple scoops, sit them at the table, hang out with them, and suffer for it later. Okay? I'm, I'm joking. I didn't have to suffer at all. But it was extremely important to me to keep the promise because I did not want to break it for fear of them transferring the breaking of promises to the God I wanted them to know. Maybe a silly thing to some, but... It meant the world to us in that little thing. Folks, if a dad who is often misguided is zealous about keeping a promise about something as silly as ice cream 
to small children. Can you imagine what the God who gives his son Jesus Christ to you is in his heart and soul in keeping his promises to you? You be blessed. Father, in Jesus' name, would you do it? Keep your word of purity. You've promised. God, you've promised the word of